I think that there are a lot of people that, that, you know, in organizations because of leadership, because of the way they're structured, really like feel at the effect of the organization or at the effect of the structure. And I think if we can get people to, to, to think creatively, inject a little noise in the system, we just, we just get to so much better outcomes. Why so, do you, why do you yeah. think leaders kind of fail to see their agency? What I find this really stunning. And I've noticed it a yeah. lot during the, during the pandemic is that they feel acted upon not not acting with or whatever the alternative to acted upon is yeah yeah um are we do you want to start i mean are we starting are you recording by the way always hola chicles (laughs) i just said hello gum just in case you're wondering Hey, it's uh, it's Todd Conklin, Pre-Accident Investigation Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. I've been looking forward to playing this one for you. Uh, th- this was a fun conversation, and you are going to have a fun time. How are things with you? Checking in. Better, worse, same? Don't measure it. Monitor it. And do kind of check in and see where you are and what you're thinking. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Chris. <laughs> Help me talk here. This isn't that hard of a word either. Chris. Clearfield. Yeah, no, that's not that hard to say. I don't know why I kind of freaked out there. I did, though. And um, it's, you're going to like it. I, it's, it's great. He wrote a book called Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. And uh, it's, uh, it's, you'll like it. it. It fits. It's right in our wheelhouse. It's, it's wheelhouseable, if, if you will. And uh, it's a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it immensely. I'm not going to talk very much before, and uh, I'll come on afterwards a little bit and maybe uh, hit a main point or two. I'm a little chatty in the conversation, but that's uh, that's fine. I mean, that's what we're doing. But I want to get it started because it's a it's it's worthwhile to to listen to. I hope you're doing great and that things are moving on uh, amazingly here at the cusp of yet another month. So that's an interesting thing, too. I, I'm about to go 12 months without being on an airplane, which for me is amazing. Just amazing. The world's really changed. I mean, it's just a, it's a different place, that's for sure. But other than that, things are good. So uh, let's listen to Chris. I think you'll enjoy him immensely. He's fun, high energy, lots of great stuff to say, and lots of kind of takeaways in this. So um, listen carefully and enjoy this, my friends, on the Pre-Accident Podcast is friend of the pod, Chris Clairfield. Take it away, Chris. Can I start by picking a bone with you a little bit? Pick away. So I think it's really interesting. um, And I've noticed this in different, in different communities, but I think particularly in, in the, the safety community that's so operationally oriented, there is a lot of generosity given to operators as there should be right. The whole, I mean, I'm on board. The whole operator error thing, you know, bad, right? But what I think is interesting is there is some level of the hierarchy at which that generosity stops being given. So, you know, operators are seen as doing the best with the constraints that they have and the tools that they have. And then you get to some level of the hierarchy where it's like, oh, but these people should be doing better. Like it, 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 like the blame almost comes in as you get further up the chain. Does that make sense? Does that observation ring true? Well, I think it's an interesting observation. And, and it's always the case 
if you build a system where you no longer are really looking at the operator as the fallible part of the system, then logically you're going to move up to leadership. And leaders often feel like they're unfairly sort of pointed out as the people who are potentially bad. The interesting part of that, and I really do think it's the interesting part of that, is that your question, I think, first has to be talked about where influence over the organization's success lives. And that, I think, is a really important part of what we want to talk about because operators have the highest exposure to the actual risk. Yes. Um, Risk as in causing bodily harm, right? Uh, Sharp things, pokey things, exploding things. I mean, risk is a big word. And yet they have the least amount of influence over the systems that are really created to actually control for that potential risk. And so you look at really not blaming managers because blame really at any level is not terribly helpful. I mean, it's it blame stops improvement because blame stops learning. You don't, once you answer the question, who's at fault, then you no longer need to do any analysis because you've got your bad guy and you need to fix that bad guy. The bigger, the bigger challenge I think we have is in understanding the role of leaders in the success of the workforce. Because what we're really battling is a sort of a classic Tayloristic view. You know, Frederick Taylor, uh, 1911, you remember him. I mean, you probably don't remember him, but. I'm with you. I I, I, I scan. (laughs) And that's the division between thinking and and working. Right. And and that's really a, a huge part of really where we go. So the umbrage I would take to what you say is that most safety programs don't actually stop blaming the work. And, and so, so my, I, I guess I, I want to, my, my critique or my pushback, if, if whatever the right word is, is not that we're universally good at not blaming operators. Cause I 100% agree. I mean, and look, I'm not a safety professional, right. But, but you all are, are, are in the trenches kind of trying to communicate this message, trying to influence every day, trying to influence, you know, Safety is a systems issue. I, I, I believe that too. I'm not, I'm not on that side of it trying to, to, to convince the, the, I think the, the kind of the, the thing I just want to just maybe one, I'm just wondering, I'm wondering if, if you're, if you see in your community, if you're aware that there is like a level of a hierarchy at which you get to where, as my friend puts it, like the bozo bit gets flipped. It's like, you know, you're talking about operators, 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 you know, and, and you don't want to have a blameful culture with them. And there's a lot of work to be done to get organizations moving in that direction and, and arriving at, you know, it's not a destination, but it's like that philosophical approach. And then there's a point where it's like, oh, if only these managers, da, 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 then things would be better. And I think the thing that's really interesting is, you know, those managers are also people, right? Those managers are also captive to a system. It's a very different system. And it's a system that some of them may have more control over. But I think if we expand the systems view, I think it's got to include those folks too. Well, Does that make sense? Well, I think it does include those folks. But I think your question's flawed prima facie in the whole notion of control. So who who has the ultimate control over resources? Who controls the system's by which work is managed. And, and that's, a, that's a reasonable question. That's a fair question. Totally. And, and it goes right back to what I started with. Why is it do I talk? Yesterday I was, I was talking with the CEO of a really, really big company. 
and he he was such a victim. Yes, well, he's not the victim. He runs the damn company. Okay, he, he's well, he's ultimately responsible for the systems in which the work was done. He's ultimately he's he's the final. I mean, there's nobody above him. Uh, board of directors. Well, board of directors, and um, there is, I think, an important thing that can get lost, which is, um, I think, social pressure. So, well, but everyone has social pressure. I mean, social pressure totally. plays in. But, but ultimately, the question I ask you is: is who, who, if if they don't give enough resources to safely do a job, right? And, th- and that's what happened because a person died. Actually, three people died, right? Then, at what point? At what point in the organization is the decision made to resource that work? And I understand the tension between protection and profit, production and reliability. Yeah. I mean, I get all that. But that's what they're paid to manage. Fair right. enough. I mean, isn't that fair? And and I'm appreciative that they're human beings, and I'm appreciative they get scared, and I'm appreciative that they're uncertain, and I'm appreciative that um, they don't really have a peer group within the organization. I mean, I understand all that stuff, but at what point do you stand up and say, you're the boss? I mean, if you can't change this, then what do you recommend? That's, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, and I, and I love, like, I, I love that we've gotten here, and like, I really, like, I really support, I really support the question. Um, the, the, because I've had a similar observation with you being with the CEO of a company. Uh, this was an early experience after I had, after the book came out and I had started doing more consulting work, they were an oil and gas company. They were pretty small, but I remember just seeing very clearly in the, in the room, like, Oh, like this CEO is very scared. He is afraid. Like he is afraid to take a stand. He's afraid to make a decision. He's afraid of what his people will, will think. And then a couple of probably a year or so later, I, uh, had the opportunity to chat with Amy Edmondson, whose work I'm sure you know, and very well, yeah. um, um, and Jim Dietert, who do you know his his uh-huh. stuff? Yes. Um, so I, I I got a chance to chat with both of them, and you know Jim has some really interesting research around um, the fact that basically as you get up in the hierarchy, your your voice does not naturally increase, right? I think a lot of us, I for for a long time had the mental model that like, okay, well, the reason people don't speak up is because they don't have power. But it turns out that that as people get power, they get scared of speaking up just for different reasons. They're 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 not scared of speaking up now because because they don't have power. They're scared of speaking up now because they're a, you know scared of being ostracized by their social group. They're scared of being fired, right? They have this sort of it feels like a higher stakes position maybe. So I, I just want to be clear. Like, I, I don't want to be, I'm not an apologist, right? I, 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 I but I, I, I think what's, I, I think a different question than the one you're asking me is the question, how can we best help senior leaders move towards uncertainty instead of moving towards, you know, rules, regulation, and fantasy? And, and that's, I think, a slightly different question than, you know, like, why aren't they taking responsibility? The interesting thing that we've done um, on our journey in sort of maturing our understanding of resilience and reliability is to really take this idea and say, the employee is not the only lever that exists in the organization for improvement. Right. And that if you only try to fix the workers, 
which is what organizations do, try harder, care more, jump faster, right? right? Then you're missing a great opportunity to actually look at the larger um, system around which the work is accomplished. Now, I'm a bias because my PhD is, I'm an organizational psychologist. Right. Right. And so I'm going to tell you that the context of the organization actually dictates to a great extent the behavioral outcomes that the organization gets. And like the master of a vessel, right, the captain of a ship, the CEO really plays a responsibility and an accountability to creating an environment where work can be done in an uncertain world successfully. And some are way better at it than others. Yeah. All right. I I have an answer to your question. I'm going to put it to you. And And that's the longest longest stall ever to get to an answer. Holy cow. It would, but it it emerged from our from oh, our emergent dialogue. Oh, yes. Okay. Very good. Well, he, I I guess what I would say is, and, and you know, thinking again from an organizational perspective, the organization is a system. The organization is an emergent, complex system. And I think that the answer, or or one answer to your question, why don't leaders feel like they have more agency, is because most people are not trained or rewarded for being systems thinkers at at various points in their career. So the follow-up question to that would be, is that a function of sort of Newtonian thinking? Is that a function of people coming out of engineering schools or MBA schools where they're taught really linear Newtonian thinking? Yeah, so I'm I'm nodding vigorously because I, I think that's, that's a big, so good that's on a, a podcast too. That works. That, really I know, right? Well. The, the vigorous nod. Um, uh, I, I, I think that's a part of it, but the other thing that I think is a part of it is when, when you think about the, the career path of a typical, you know, uh, let's say kind of, you know, sort of junior level knowledge worker up to a senior leader, I think, I think a couple of things happen, right? For the first 80% of their career, People are, or whatever, whatever the number is, people are essentially rewarded and promoted for coming up with kind of like approximate, you know, approximate known answers to answerable questions. And then you get to this point where you start operating at the scale of a system or, or, or of, a, of a big system. And all of those, I mean, this is what I see with the leaders that I work with. And, and I wonder if you see it too. It's like, all of those skills that had been driving you to get to an answer, when you get to the point where now your job is to understand and influence the system in a kind of, you know, lateral, like across the hierarchy, up and down, across the hierarchy laterally, all of a sudden, those very same skills start to engender resistance in people, right? So so I worked with a group at, a, at an oil and gas company recently that was was given a big mandate to look overall at reliability. And, and there was a safety piece of that too, but it was you know driven by this idea of reliability and competitiveness. And what was really interesting is, you know, the, the, the kind of go-to skill that this group had a bunch of engineers was to, to show data to other people. And like, that's a really adaptive skill for lots of parts of, of, of that organization. And that's a really adaptive skill for lots of parts of those folks' careers. Now, when they were in this role where they were in a much more influential role, the, the actual adaptive skill in, in that way, I think, is asking questions, being curious, bringing that objective curiosity. But 
most, you know, whatever, you know, most GS1s or whatever, like most, you know, new kind of, you know, professionally trained managers are not really rewarded for curiosity. So you spend the first, you know, 20 years of your career being told to stay in your lane. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, the whole pool is yours. Like, what are you going to do about it? I think that's a part of it. I think it's that linear training and then that being rewarded for linear effort that a lot of organizations kind of habitually support. So I have a theory that I would add to that. And that is, I think oftentimes they're victims of their own internal administrative bureaucracy. Oh, that they yes. cre- they create these these gargantuan systems, um, and we could debate whether they're created with the best intentions or not. I mean, often often they're created to learn across the enterprise, or you know, there's there's all sorts of uh, clear goals for that. And the system, the bureaucracy of the system, is so burdensome yeah. that they feel, to a great extent, victimized by the fact that they can't take swift action because. I'm going to put air quotes up, which also works really well for a podcast, a podcast because it <laughs> takes a long time to turn a aircraft carrier around, right? Right. Or, well, or yeah, the uh, battleship uh, insert any seagoing vessel nautical. Yeah, for me, it takes a long time to turn like a sailboat around because I'm not a very good sailor. <laughs> yeah. but that's a that's a different right, issue, right? And so that that bureaucracy and really the iron laws that sort of exist around that bureaucracy, the bureaucracy is always working hard to reinforce itself yeah, at every level of the organization. And that to a great extent, the buck stopping at the CEO's desk is true. It stops. I mean, that they are the ultimate decision maker and how they respond matters. That makes a huge difference, but yes. they live inside of this bureaucratic underpinning that oftentimes causes them great resistance to facilitate change, even change for the better. There's an element, there really is an element of powerlessness in the face of the bureaucracy. I mean, and, and, you know, look, I mean, this is, this is kind of in some sense, what defines a complex, tightly coupled system, right? It's like something where you, 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 you kind of push on one area of it. There's going to be lots of unexpected consequences and you may not even be able to observe the whole thing and, and you may not be able to, um, you may not be able to interrupt the process that you've started. Yeah. I mean, that's so there's lots in that actually comment you just made. So it's interesting because what I'm taking from what you're saying is that perhaps our models for leadership are archaic in that they assume linearity to the system and they're not, they're not at a place where they actually help leaders be successful in managing more of a complex adaptive organization, an organization that's, that's tightly coupled, you know, many pieces tightly coupled, the classic definition of complexity, but that has emergent properties that the individual parts are less interesting than the total parts. um, And that interconnectedness is really powerful across the board. That's actually a really interesting premise. Which actually goes right back to what Amy Edmondson's. There's there's this phenomenon happening with her work that's driving me bananas, and it's that nobody's reading it, and their assumption is that psychological safety is a loving organization where everyone feels safe to speak up, which is almost in exactly opposite of her totally. premise. Her premise is that psychological safe, safety is not measured in how warm and fuzzy people feel. But how bold, totally. and, but how bold and brave they are at actually pushing the margins of the system. 
I got to interview Amy. I have a, a, a podcast much, much uh, more humble than, than yours, much less prolific. I just started it recently, but I got to interview Amy for it. And one of the things that she said that I thought was so interesting was she said, basically to your, to your point, like she was like, psychological safety was not a good name for this, this whole thing. And I'm paraphrasing her, but she said, um, I think a better name would have been a felt sense of candor, like a felt yeah. sense that you're, you're like invited to share. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. Um, I think, I think that the, the misinterpretation of the term is, you know, I, I guess um, concerning is maybe the word. Well, it's, it's causing harm organizationally because it's putting the burden on the worker to speak up. Exactly. If we created exactly. an environment and, and the idea that you can ask workers to speak up, you can say, well, we've created this psychologically safe environment doesn't actually equate to a psychologically safe environment. The better question, and it really, I think felt sense of candor is, that'd be hard to sell and it would look stupid. Hey, well, that's, I mean, it's a mouthful. As, <laughs> but, yeah, as, but I think that's a much more accurate, it's a way more accurate understanding of, of what really organizations are trying to do. And if you think about it and you sort of thread through, you know, at shine and you start looking at all sort of the, the path that we took to get to this, right. you know, the idea of humble inquiry, the idea of creating yeah. a sense of curiosity. I mean, ultimately what we're getting at is really leaders in a complex organization must be comfortable with not knowing and getting information as opposed yes. to the traditional more Tayloristic view, which is that leaders know the reason they're in that seat is because right. they have the answer. And that and, actually and I, is probably more accurate of an answer to the question I ask yes. you than anything is the reason they don't have a sense of agencies because they don't know. And they're scared to admit they don't know. Yeah. I think I you're mean, right. that's probably think, a really valuable point. It's I, offensive. I think it is because what'd you say? It's offensive to leaders. So they're going to, they're well, going to, they're going to call bullshit on us pretty quickly. I, well, I'll tell you the experience that, so I mostly work with leaders that are in some kind of, so they're senior, but they're, they're in some kind of like non-line role. So they're trying to influence people outside of their reporting line. Inter and most Introduce yourself. It'd be a really, yeah, we should man. probably do that at some point. And now's as good a time as anywhere half hour in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, my name is Chris Clearfield. Uh, I do a bunch of different things. Um, I wrote a book called Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It that came out in 2018, all about, uh, built really on the work of Charles Perrault, all about complex and tightly coupled systems and how to thrive within them. Um, I co-wrote it with uh, my um uh, friend and business partner, Andras Tilchik, who's a sociology professor. And, you know, now I am kind of in some sense doing the work that we have outlined in the book and, and the work that we're talking about. I, I work with senior leaders, mostly those who are in a position of, of influence and, and kind of um, competence, but not necessarily line authority uh, to help them sit with their, like to help them work with their uncertainty and to help them solve, you know, the most, the most complex consequential problems that their organizations have kind of kicked over to them. And that's, that's what I do in a nutshell. I help leaders move through uncertainty to get, to, to find the ability to get curious about 
the answers that they don't know. How do you create that sense of curiosity? I mean, how do you help them create? You probably don't do it, but how do you help them create that sense of curiosity? Well, I guess it's interesting. I don't know. Um, I think one thing is to reassure them that it's okay to not know the answer. And there's a bunch of different ways to do that. I, I had a, a, a project with a, and, and I had a project with an oil and gas company recently, a big one. This is the, the, the folks working on this reliability, this big reliability question. And I realized about halfway into it that I kept trying to give them an answer. And they kept asking me for answers. And I kept trying to give them answers. And then I was like, wait a second. I don't know the answer. And in fact, you know, there are people in this room who have spent more time at this company than I've been alive, right? So like, so like, they're not like, even if I told them I had the answer and I gave it to them, they would be really skeptical of it, rightfully so. And so I just started saying like, like, I don't know. I'm not like, I'm not sure. Let's think about that. Like, and I, I think so one answer to your question is that we ourselves as someone who comes from outside of the system and is sort of helping to intervene in that system, we can use our very presence to model that it's okay to be uncertain, that it's okay to not know. Is that woo-woo enough for you? That's pretty good. I mean, I think that was a really good answer. Uh, to me, I think the interesting message, and maybe this comes with time and sort of failure, but it's it's a much more powerful and more interesting place to be in not knowing. Not knowing yeah. is always more interesting than knowing. Because if you know, then all you're going to do is really seek ways to reinforce what you know. But yeah. in not knowing, you really have the freedom to move really throughout whatever the problem is, whatever the organization is, whatever your subset is with a sense of curiosity. And it's, it's, it's just much better. It's more interesting. It's It's, transformational. Yeah. It's more fun. It's more satisfying. It's Um, way more fun. You know, it's, it's just, it's more interesting. And, and that message I think really goes back to the sort of breakthrough comment we had, although maybe it's not very, maybe it is breakthrough. And that is that really what happens is, we haven't taught leaders how to lead in complex organizations or, or it's not us, but the, our systems of education and leadership sort of development really assume a linearity. They, they assume yeah. you manage people and systems like you manage budgets and material. Maybe. Well, and, and I think this moment and, and you've, you've, I've heard you talk about this on this, on this very podcast, Todd, but, but this moment is one of those moments that, sort of shows which organizations have the capacity to adapt, which organizations have been building that muscle and, and which ones haven't. And I think that's a really, that's a really interesting, um, it's just an interesting lens. Um, you know, I want to revise my earlier objection because I, I think something you said made me, made me think about it, which is, I guess the thing that I want to fight for when we think about the dynamics between operators who are closest to the closest to the hazard closest to the risk however you want to say it and and leaders as they get further away from it the thing that i want to fight for is i want to fight for assuming that most the vast majority not all but the vast majority of leaders have positive intent i'm not trying to be an apologist but the reason i want to fight for this is because i think that the real the real gift and, and and diane said this too the real gift that we can give leaders to help them change is awareness of the way things are right now. And so the more, the more open we are to their experiences, 
the less judgmental we are, the more kind of optimistic we are about their abilities, the, the more likely we'll be able to give them that perspective that helps them make the shift to this curiosity. So I, I think we have to accept leaders where they are for sure. And, and, and until we accept them where they are and, and there's so much we can talk about, but it's hard. It's hard to think about somebody standing on a street corner saying, what about the poor CEOs? You know, I, I feel, I feel bad for the poor CEOs. I, I don't think we should. And the reason I don't, I don't think we sh- I don't the reason I don't think we should is because I think to a great extent their the system in which they operate which is filled with risk and uh, it, tremendous incentives I mean there's a lot going on for them right they they have to keep the shareholder value high and and they've got lots of balls that they're juggling simultaneously in order to make the organization function the challenge is is that is that looking at Looking at the people as the problem, which is generally um, what I see when I am involved in organizations, is, is not very fruitful. It's easy, and it certainly reinforces the fundamental uh, attribution bias, but it's not terribly effective. It, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't really make for a change. So when something bad happens and the CEO says, I had a stand down, I stood the entire organization down, which is costly, timely and actually relatively dramatic as interventions go. And I stood up in front of them and I told them, you'll either follow my rules or you'll find another place to work. The question I want to ask is, what'd that fix? And where'd you get the idea that that would actually make a difference? Because it doesn't. It fixes nothing. And it probably, in fact, harms the system that you were trying desperately to bring into stability which goes really to the notion of uncertainty and uncertainty is really, so we, we want to predict the future in order to control the future. Right. <laughs> and so we desperately look for ways to predict what will happen next, but uncertainty is uncertain. I mean, that's kind of not the smartest thing I've ever said, but we don't it's know. Pretty, what, it's, it's, it's pretty on point, Todd. <laughs> but, but right. And, and the crazy <laughs> thing is that the future has always been uncertain. And so uncer- ah. uncertainty is not a new phenomenon. This didn't just happen. No, but I do think that there is something new, which is I think, you know, in the in the Taylorist world, you could study, 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 write a procedure, and then – like that. You could study, 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 write a procedure, punish people if they didn't follow it, and then get a, get a, a reasonably predictable outcome. Right. I think that what's different about the world now is it's dominated by connections, not and 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 you can't manage complexity. It's dominated by complexity and connections, and you can't manage that with rules. And I think that's the disconnect. Like as 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 Amy Edmondson put it to me, like basically what 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 her mental model is like every manager walks around with a tiny little Henry Ford in their head, being like, Well, if only we could optimize this production process, then things would be okay. And I think the key shift is that. We, I mean, just like we've been talking about, we live in an emergent world where linear tools don't help us. And so, but they're the, they're the easiest thing to reach for. And right? the most comfortable. And, 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 the, and the most comfortable. Because numbers numbers give us the an illusion that we can sort of understand and predict the future. And if we can totally. predict the future, it's, we can control the future. And so numbers, in essence, uh, give the belief that you're somehow controlling for uncertainty. It's the it's the keys under the street lamp thing you were talking about a couple a couple episodes. Wow, you ago. really did listen. 
I'm, impre- I'm impressed by this. Um, well, I, no, but I, I think it's great. And it really like, th- and it's actually exactly that. It's like, it's not even just about the data. It's about the tools. It's like, you know, okay. A company, ha- I mean, you know, we've seen, I mean, this is, this is not dis- dissimilar to the pattern you were just describing. Company has an accident or an incident, right? Okay. They do an investigation. What do they do? They write a big honking procedure to say, all right, we're never going to let this happen again. Here are the, you know, 500 steps that you need now to do in this process. And they shove it down to operators. They don't adjust, you know, they don't give more resources. They don't give more time, right? So they reimagine the work without changing how it's going to be done. And they don't realize that actually now your 500 step procedure is itself a source of complexity and risk, right? When you demand that everybody does the right thing every time, as if they're automatons, you've just injected even more risk into the system. But that's still, you know, it's it's adaptive because it's comfortable. It's not adaptive to the system, but it's adaptive to the leaders who are in a room saying, we got to fix this. We got to make sure this never happens again. And, and this is what, this is an observation that that kind of drove us to write the book. It was like, there's just this, I mean, and we're not, again, not the first people to observe this, but there's just this huge gap between what the people who are closest to the operational details know and what the people who are closest to the decision-making power know, right? So there's that gap. And that is uh, a, a lack of a felt sense of candor that, that, that <laughs> widens that. Um, uh, I think the other thing is just what power does to people. And that's deeply biological, right? And, and, and so I think that goes back to this, this idea of like, we've really got to look at all the channels of adaptivity and, one of the counters to that behavior is to be an outsider who's trying to bring awareness to things in the organization. So what do you think? I'd love any kind of podcast that ends up with curiosity being a key leadership tool. I almost said weapon. That's weird. Oh, oh I took it to a weird metaphor. A, a key leadership tool because a curious leader is really a good leader. And, and curiosity seems to be the most powerful and kind of the most humbling part of leadership. And that is pretty important for us to think about. And then this idea of reluctant innovators is really powerful to me as well. I, I'm going to think about that one more because I think there's more to think about. Okay, so that's the pod for today. Hope you're doing good. Tell your friends. Um, subscribe. There's lots more great stuff. This is going to be a good year for podcasts. I can't believe how big the numbers are and, and the, all these really interesting people are expressing interest in being on, which is always fun. That's always a good time. So we're good there. Until then, my friends, learn something new every single day. Bet you did today. Have as much fun as you possibly can. Be kind to each other. I think that's really important. Check in on one another, and I know that's important. And until then, be safe.